Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we were just a few minutes ago. We are starting a brand new series this morning, and I want to introduce that to you today and also next week before we get into the actual series itself. It's a two-week introduction before we actually get into the series. At our anniversary service last month, uh, I gave you the history of this church. And what I mentioned to you is that the first form of this church actually began almost 12 years ago. Now, 12 years ago, uh, in fact, it was 12 years ago this summer, uh, God first began to reveal this idea to me about starting a church. And I'm going to tell you the whole uh, reaction I first had when I heard about that will not sound real spiritual to you. I began to seek God's will and pray about it and so forth, see if this is what God wanted me to do. And here's what I said to myself, what kept going through my head, and I expressed this to Sandy as well. I said to myself, God can't use me to do this. I don't have what it takes to build a church. I'm nothing special. Uh, This is what the giants of the faith do. This is what the great evangelists, the great missionaries, the famous missionaries do. Uh, Why would God choose me to do a work like that? Now, if you've been saved very long, uh, and then I'm sure God has challenged you in some way as well. And God has presented some work to you that he wanted you to do, he called you to do, and that work seemed to be totally outside your abilities, totally outside your skills. And you probably looked back to see if God was talking to somebody else, and maybe it was somebody behind you who was speaking to, because he certainly couldn't be talking to you and offering this opportunity to you. When God said that to me, I understood that with God all things are possible. I knew it was not my work, it was his work. I knew all the familiar Christian sayings, all the familiar Christian phrases. I knew all of that. But speaking just from a human perspective, my first reaction when God presented this whole idea to me was that he simply couldn't be talking to me. He had to be talking to somebody else. And then I ran across a truth, or God reminded me of a truth I've always known, but it came clear to me as I decided to move forward with this ministry. And this is not intended to be some false modesty when I say this, but it came clear to me that I am nothing special. I'm a pretty routine kind of person, pretty ordinary kind of person, and those are exactly the kind of people that God uses. And God has always used. I think God takes great pleasure in doing great things through people who don't really appear to have the ability to do what he's called them to do. I think God enjoys surprising people and amazing them with what he is able to do with people and with resources that really don't seem up to the task. In fact, if you study church history from the very beginning, you're going to find that God has pretty much always done his work just that way. He takes those who are ordinary and does great things through them, things that only he could do. And that is what this series that we're beginning today is really all about. Jesus Christ began his ministry, earthly ministry, with 12 ordinary men. And as we go through this study, we're going to see just how ordinary these men are, just how flawed they were, just how obvious it was that, humanly speaking, there was no way in the world they were up to the task that God was calling them to. And in spite of that, God used them, and God used them in an indescribable way. He used them to get the gospel to all the world. And here's what I want us to take away from this study. If God can do that with them, he can do it with us. And nobody is excluded from that. If God wants to use ordinary people, we are about as ordinary as it comes. God wants you and I to be the image of Jesus Christ to our world. Now, just think about that for a second. You know yourself. I know myself. Jesus, God wants me to be Jesus Christ to my world. Do you realize how impossible that is for me to do? (laughs) I know how impossible that is. And if you're honest with yourself, you know how impossible that is as well. That is an impossible task that God has called us to do in our own strength. We are flawed. Uh, we We are majorly flawed. 
God has called you and me to be a part of a work and to be a lighthouse and a beacon to Stark County and Perry Township and this little neighborhood that he's placed us in. But if God has called us to do that, if he wants to be Jesus, us to be Jesus Christ to our world, if he wants to build a church right here through us, and if he uses ordinary people to get that done, as he always had, then God has everything that he needs right here and right now to make that work happen. It's all ready for him. It's right here. So the goal of this series is for us to look at each of these 12 men that God called, these apostles, and see how God used them. And then we're going to take that as our inspiration as we attempt to do a work for God here. Just ordinary people, we are going to allow God to work through us and do an extraordinary work through us. And so the title of this series is Ordinary Men, Extraordinary Mission. And that's the case with them, and that's the case with you and I this morning. Now, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter, six, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again. And with that as the background, I'd like to read these verses to you again this morning. Because Paul says something here that I think we need to get a hold of. He says in verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. He says, you understand, that's not who God calls. Look at verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. You're looking at him this morning. (laughs) To confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world. I'm looking at them this morning. To confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world. And things which are despised. Hath God chosen. Yea. And things which are not. To bring to naught. Things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. That's who God calls. And that's how God calls. We understand from this verse that something is very clear to us soon after we trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Maybe this even came to you at the moment of your salvation. God never does things the way we do them. Never. God never does things how I think they ought to be done. God never does things with my frame of mind. God has his own unique way of accomplishing the work that he wants to do. And rarely does it ever match with our picture of how that work should be done. And nowhere is that more true than in the lives of these men that he called to work with him on this mission of bringing the gospel message of salvation to the world. So I want you to think about, first of all, the ministry of Jesus Christ as it began. Our Lord's ministry began as a ministry of controversy. That's how it started. From the time he first came upon the scene until he was crucified, no figure was more polarizing than Jesus Christ. And if you want a clear example of that, I'm going to have you turn to several passages of Scripture this morning. So get your fingers ready. I'll go to Luke chapter 4. Go to Luke chapter 4. Here's just one example of the polarizing nature of the ministry of Jesus Christ as he began. Luke chapter 4, look at verse 28. Luke chapter 4, verse 28. Here's what it says. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath... And rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him under the brow of the hill whereupon, whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he passed through the midst of them, went his way. Jesus Christ preaches, and they're so angry, they're so filled with wrath against what he has said. Uh, the first recorded met public message that Jesus Christ preaches in the local synagogue, no sooner does he finish that message, these people hear that message, and they are so angered by what he says, they want to throw him off a cliff. That's the first time he preached publicly. That's what his response was. And although all those folks in his town, in that town hated him, these were his people. These are the people he grew up with. 
Even though those folks hated him, he had great popularity with those among the larger regions around Galilee. They heard of his miracles. They were informed of great things he had done at wherever he was. And great crowds of people would come to hear him speak and see what he would do. Matthew 13 tells us that at one time the crowds were so great, he had to pull away from the crowd and get into a boat and preach off that boat and allow those people to stay on the shore. There were simply so many of them. So he was not accepted in his hometown, but his popularity across the region was huge. Now, as we look at that from our 21st century point of view, we may wonder why Jesus Christ didn't do more to capitalize on that popularity. I mean, the folks at home may not have liked him, but the greater population did. Why didn't he do more to, to enhance that popularity? I mean, had he been in this day and age, he would have been managed by some Madison Avenue ad agency, and they would have exploited that fame. They would have put his face on billboards, on magazines. They would have put him online, on TV promotions. He probably would have had his own TV show, maybe an infomercial at the very least. Jesus Christ did the exact opposite of that. Rather than take advantage of that popularity and that fame and exploit it, he actually emphasized the very things that made him so controversial. <laughs> in fact, just about the time that his popularity was at his peak, he preached a message in John chapter 6 that was so offensive to the people that he almost lost all his crowd. Go to John chapter 6 and look at verse 66. He preaches this message. and I'm not going to read the whole message to you this morning. I just want you to see the reaction to it. After he preaches this message, the people are so offended. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 66 says this. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. His very disciples said, man, we can't take this heat. We got to get out of here. And they left him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Notice who stayed. Look at the next verse. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Greater words were never spoken. The ones who stayed were those disciples who he had chosen, those men who had, he had called to help him in proclaim this message of the gospel, and they had watched him work day by day, and Peter said, Lord, there's no place else for us. We've got to stay with you. Now, what we're going to see again, I'm going to say this to you several times this morning and several times next week as well, and several times throughout the course of this series. These are just ordinary, unexceptional, unexceptional men. Nothing stands out about them. Nothing that would catch your eye. Nothing that would impress you. And that's exactly who he chose to work through. He didn't use his popularity to his advantage. Rather, he used all the power that was available to him uh, and attract ordinary men like these guys. He didn't look for the influences of the day, major influences of the day. He worked through a few fallible individuals. And on these 12 men rested the entire future of Christ's ministry and the church that he had come to form on these 12 guys. If they failed, humanly speaking, there's no plan B. <laughs> this is it. If these guys don't do it, it's not going to get done. The work of Jesus Christ was going to be advanced as it was described in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's how the work was going to get done. And so a dozen men under the power of the Holy Ghost could do more than thousands of people who came to hear Jesus Christ only because they were curious, only because they wanted to see what miracle he would do next. Just these 12 guys. And Jesus Christ personally chose these 12 men and invested all his energy and all his time into training them to do the work that God called them to do. And I want, you to, be, I want to remind you of something. Please realize He chose them before they chose him. 
He chose them before they chose him. He targeted them to be his disciples before they were even really aware of who he was. He had his eye on them. He picked out those 12 men. And Jesus called them in a very specific way and at a very specific time. I want to read you sort of a lengthy portion of Scripture. I want you to go to John chapter 1, if you would. John chapter 1. And I want to show you how just four of his disciples were chosen. I want you to watch how Jesus Christ worked. I think we get great insight into how Jesus Christ calls by reading this passage. So I want to start in John chapter 1 and begin in verse 35 and read down through the end of the chapter. John chapter 1, verse 35. And the next day after John, speaking of John the Baptist, stood and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is, being interpreted, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. There you have Andrew and John and Peter and Nathaniel meeting Jesus Christ for the very first time. John the Baptist is baptizing, and these men heard John cry out, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And when they heard that, they chose to follow Jesus Christ. That was phase one of their calling. Phase one is a calling to conversion. A calling to conversion. Now, we understand, of course, that their conversion experience is not like the one you and I experienced. They weren't saved in the same sense we are because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ had not yet been made. What it does rather underscore is a very important point. A person cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ without first responding to the need of salvation. In order for a person to be saved, there must be a change of mind about who Jesus Christ is and a change of direction about their attitude toward him. There can be no discipleship without conversion. And I say that because there are thousands of people out there who are trying to follow Jesus Christ who don't know him as Savior. And they feel like by following him and doing those works, somehow that's going to earn them a place in heaven. All that is, folks, is wasted effort. You can't follow Jesus Christ until you first know Jesus Christ. 
No discipleship without conversion. Just because he's a good teacher, just because he's a moral man, just because he's a prophet, and you believe all those things, is never going to make anybody a disciple. Saving faith must, follow, must precede any desire to follow Jesus Christ. And so notice, even after they became followers, they continued their full-time occupations. These were not full-time ministers in the way that we think about ministry today. They were disciples, but they were following Jesus Christ, hear me now, in the regular life they lived before their conversion. Not a special life now because they know Jesus Christ. They lived that same life. They just lived that same life now with an understanding and a knowledge and a reflection of Jesus Christ. Next, after their conversion, was a call to their ministry. First was their conversion and then a call to ministry. Go to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. I want you to see record of the call to ministry that uh, these disciples had. Jesus Christ has just finished a message to the people. He now instructs Peter to launch out into the deeper water and cast out his net. Now, Peter is, is already exhausted. He's fished all night and has com- been completely unsuccessful at catching anything. Look at verse 5, if you would, of Luke chapter 5. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. There's a whole message there we're not going to get into this morning. (laughs) And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. After this event occurred, according to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, Jesus Christ spoke the words that we've heard him speak so often, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He watched them toil in the boat and they pulled up the fish. And then he says, you see what you did there? I want you to do the same thing. Only this time it's not fish, it's men. And the disciples respond. Look at Luke chapter 5 and verse 11. And when they had brought their shift to land, they forsook all and followed him. From that point on, they were no longer disciples with employment elsewhere. From that point on, they left the trade that they knew and became full-time ministers for Jesus Christ, inseparable from him as they learned the work that he had called them to do. And this led to the third phase of their calling, the call to apostleship. The call to apostleship. You're in Luke chapter 5. Go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and look at verse 12. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. So Jesus Christ calls these men to him, and I can't conceive of this. They begin an internship under Jesus Christ. Wow. (laughs) They are called to him, and they begin the internship, and Jesus Christ is their teacher. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 tells us he sent them out two by two. At that point, they weren't ready to go out on their own. And they needed the support of each other as they did this work they were called to do. And Jesus Christ stayed close to them. And they would often check in with him and report what was going on and get his guidance and instruction in the ministry. And they continue on in the work that God called them to until the very time he was taken prisoner and later crucified. 
And once he died and was resurrected, and in the years following, they received their fourth calling. It was the calling to martyrdom. The calling to martyrdom. Here's what history tells us. History tells us that all, all but one of the disciples of the eleven, all but one of them, surrendered their lives as a result of their ministry. Ten of those fellows were killed because they were followers of Jesus Christ. And the one who, did not, who was not killed, John, was exiled to a deserted island and died in persecution. Those twelve men, those twelve men, those ordinary men, called of God to serve, completed the work that God gave them to do. Well, eleven of them. Against all odds, they did God's work and they entered with victory into the presence of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something, folks. You are here today because of the work of those 12 men. That's why you're here this morning. That work continued on 2,000 years later, and the church goes on today because of the work of those 12 men. And the gospel is spread throughout the four corners of the world because 12 men dedicated themselves to serve Jesus Christ. Twelve ordinary men chose to serve him. Now, here's what I want to focus on for the rest of our time today. And also for next Sunday, I want to focus on the third phase of their calling. I want to talk about the, the, the phrase of, the, the, of the, the selection and the appointment uh, to their apostleship. And there's two things I want you to see this morning, and then we'll continue on next Sunday. First of all, I want you to see the timing of their calling, the timing of their calling. Luke chapter six. Look there again, if you would. And look at verse 12. Because when they're called, before they're called, I want you to see what it says. It says, now it came to pass in those days. Now, the phrase in those days is referring to a specific time, a distinct phase in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And if you read around all that, what you're going to find is Jesus Christ at that moment was facing the greatest opposition in the work that he had been called to do. If you look back to chapter 5, don't do that. But if you did, you'd find the scribes and Pharisees, they came onto the scene and had become the Lord's chief adversaries against his work. Everything he did, every word he spoke, every work that he did was met with resistance and ridicule by this group of church leaders. <laughs> Fascinating how that is. Look at chapter 6, verse 11 again. Luke chapter 6, verse 11. And they were filled with madness. <laughs> And communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. Here's the religious crowd. Here's the religious leaders of the day. And they're getting together in a group. And they're saying to one another, how can we get rid of this guy? How can we shut him up? How can we stop him? The religious leaders filled with madness because Jesus Christ had done a miracle. He healed a man in verse 10. And they're filled with madness. If you read the account in Matthew and Mark, you'll find that they were so angry they wanted to kill him. The Pharisees even got together with the Herodians to oppose Jesus Christ. Prior to that time, the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. But Jesus Christ had bonded them together in opposition to the message and the work that he was doing. At that very moment, with all that chaos going on, with all that resistance, and they want to kill Jesus Christ, at that moment, Jesus calls his disciples. <laughs> when the hostility had never been greater... When the opposition had never been higher, Jesus Christ calls these 12 men. He knew all along what this was leading to. He knew that the cross was coming ever so closely and that soon he would be delivered unto death. And now was the time to prepare our group of men who would continue that work and maintain that ministry after Jesus Christ died and ascended to heaven. It was time now to, 
to begin this intense training that would prepare them for what they would face once he was gone. So this ministry of Jesus Christ shifts from a focus of the multitude to the focus of preparing a select few men for ministry. And I find something very interesting about the men Jesus Christ called. In fact, I put that in your, in your bulletin this morning. If you read the pastor's page, you'll see this also. Uh, there is not one rabbi in the group. There is not one scribe in the group. <laughs> there is not one Pharisee in the group. Now, in our Lord's, Lord's very choice of who he called to train and follow him, he turned his back on the religious institutions of that day. He chose men with no connection to the religious hierarchy. He chose men with no theological training and no theological background. He chose fishermen and tax collectors and common, ordinary people. Get a hold of that if you would. Get a hold of that. I take great pleasure in the fact that God is not looking for the most formally trained people to use. I take great joy in the fact that he's not looking for the ones who have the most to offer in terms of educational background. You know who Jesus Christ is looking for? He's looking for those who are willing. That's all he needs. If you're willing, he can use you. You say, no, he can't. Yes, he can. (laughs) Yes, he can. All he needs is somebody who's willing to do what he's called them to do. Jesus Christ saw training as important. He spent the next three years training these men that he had chosen. But the training came from him, not from an organization, not from a recognized group, not from some accredited Christian college or university. If we want to be used by God, the best training we will ever get is that training that comes from God himself as he puts us through situations and gives us opportunities to get to know him personally and intimately. And that training is going to be worth more than a 100 letters behind your name. I got my formal training from Malone College back in many, when they just invented light. I got my training back then. I have learned more in the 12 years of pastoring than I learned in four years of college. I'm telling you, folks, the only way to know how to do God's work is to do God's work. (laughs) That's the only way to learn it. Uh, You can go to school, and school will teach you some things. I'm not discounting everything I learned in college. There were some valuable things there, the things I remember that my brain still holds on to. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you something. Get in the work, and God will train you. Just say, yes, Lord, and he'll take care of the rest. I'm not able. Oh, yes, you are. Can you say yes? (laughs) Then you're able. Then you're able. That's all it takes. We have this idea, and I'm afraid that many of our churches and religious people have uh, kind of given this idea that the only people that are usable are those who have been formally trained in some way. And I'm not discounting that. Please hear, I'm not discounting that. But at the same time, a lot of people are set aside from the work because they don't have that. A lot of people God could use if they would let them use it. <laughs> training comes from him. That's the best training to get. I'm sure if you've been in ministry very long, you've learned that yourself. And what we see when, God cho- when Jesus Christ chose these men, he turned his back on the religious establishment of the day. That's why they hated him so much. They didn't value. He didn't value what they were offering. <laughs> and they couldn't take it. He had no time for a form of godliness that denied the power thereof. And because he rejected them, they rejected him. They despised everything he taught. They rejected every principle he proposed. Even as they saw him do the miracles that he did, they refused to accept his credentials as the Messiah. They hated him, and they hated his message. As a result, turn to John chapter 15. You say, what in the world does this all have to do with me? I'm going to show you what it has to do with you. 
John chapter 15. Look at verse 20. Remember, he says, remember, when Jesus Christ says, remember, you need to remember. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's what it has to do with you. (laughs) If you choose to follow, if you choose to be a disciple, we need to understand what it is that we are choosing. We are choosing the same persecution that Jesus Christ received. What he says there is, if they did it to me, after all the miracles I performed, uh, they'll do it to ordinary people like you and I. Just as they persecuted ordinary men like the apostles. And listen to me again, just hear it, please. The persecution came typically from the religious crowd. Those folks who saw a threat to their power and to their standing. And when that occurred, Jesus Christ responded, and we need to respond just like he did. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I don't like to tell you this, but it's the truth. I've got more resistance from people in the church than I ever got from people outside the church. (laughs) I've had more people within Christian circles tell me I can't do this work than I've ever had people outside this place tell me that. That's where the resistance comes from. That's who Satan uses. He uses those folks who you would never expect to be used. And he says, if they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. Now, can I tell you what to do when you get that persecution? Keep doing what God's called you to do. Don't lose sight of what God's called you to do. Just keep doing what God has called you to. That's what Jesus Christ did. He didn't allow that persecution to turn his head for a minute. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be perplexed by it. Just see it coming and then do the work that God has called you to do. Just turn to those people who will hear you and tell them what God has told you. And God will use you. So that's the timing. God calls them. Jesus Christ calls them at the very height of his persecution. Here's the other thing I want you to see today. and We'll close. I want you to see the 12. The 12. Now, I know that as we read these accounts of the apostles, as they work in the New Testament, they almost seem larger than life. They seem to excel beyond what we could ever be or ever accomplish. So I want to say this to you again. Please hear me. I'll say it a lot to you. <laughs> that is not the case. These are common men. These are ordinary men, just regular people. We see their names on churches. We hear them given the title of saint. And unfortunately, because we see them exalted that way and raised to that level, uh, higher than where they really existed, it gives us a faulty picture of who they really were. I'm afraid sometimes we approach these apostles and it causes them to be so far removed from us uh, that they seem so much more spiritual than we are, we feel no connection to them. And that idea is so contrary to how Jesus Christ selected them. He chose men not because of their ability, not because of their spirituality. He called them particularly and precisely because they were so ordinary. (laughs) So what qualified them? Why would God call them? Well, it wasn't because of any ability they had. It wasn't because of their own skill. I don't want to mislead you. There were certain qualifications that they had to meet. Uh, God's word places a high standard on those who would be in leadership uh, in the body of Christ. First uh, Timothy chapter three or Titus chapter one or Hebrews thirteen seven gives us those qualifications. So there are qualifications. There are moral and spiritual qualities that need to be there. And a church leader will give account for how they conducted themselves as they carried out the responsibility as a leader in the church. Uh, God expects that, however, folks, from every one of his children. <laughs> 
We get this idea because sometimes I'm on a higher level than you or sometimes that I'm on a higher level than you. I'm not, nor is any other preacher. God calls us all the same way, and God expects us all to have the same qualifications, the same moral and spiritual qualities. Uh, God expects us to take his name on and live lives that show a high quality of moral and spiritual excellence. And you'll give an account someday for how you did that. But understand, we will never live out that standard completely. God has set a standard. We're imperfect people. We can't live up to a perfect standard. We're sinful. We have fallen short of the glory of God. So in that sense, none of you are qualified to do God's work, including me. If we look at it that way, we are the most unqualified people in the world. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And the fact is, (laughs) he uses us anyway. I don't know. (laughs) Somehow, as faulty and as flawed and as fallen as I am, God has still chosen to use me. And by the way, same true of all of you as well. And anybody listening today. In spite of how faulty and flawed and fallen you are, God wants to use you to be a part of the greatest work on earth, the greatest work ever conceived. And that is not a testament to our ability or our qualifications. That is a testament to the grace and the mercy of God. (laughs) That's what it is. It's a testament of his ability to equip us and train us to do an extraordinary work. So when it comes to God's work, I will tell you flat out, there are no people qualified to do it in and of themselves. However, God saves us and God calls us and God prepares us and God sends us to do the work that he's designed for us to do. And did you hear it? It's all of him. All of him. (laughs) I have no part in that except to say, yes, Lord, I'll do it. And once I say that, he takes over, and it all happens from there. And that applies to us. That applies to these 12. They had a nature like our nature. They were flawed like we are flawed. As you read through the Gospels, you'll see those flaws show up. They didn't rise to the level of service that they rose to because of what was in them. They rose to the level of service they rode to because God chose to use them and accomplish his purpose through them. Now, as you sit here this morning... It's very possible somebody is sitting here who is discouraged, who is disheartened, who is saying, you know what? I can't do the work God has called me to. And you may feel like that when you try, your shortcomings and your sins get in the way and prevent you from accomplishing the work that God has called you to accomplish. And so you may see yourself as worthless. You may see yourself as somebody who is never fit to accomplish any real work for Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. Those feelings are all totally accurate. (laughs) You are a worthless nobody. I am a worthless nobody. Left to myself, I will never accomplish one thing in God's work. And anything I try to accomplish in and of myself, I will mess it up every time. (laughs) Guaranteed 100%. I'll be perfect in that. I'll be perfect in messing up God's work if I try to do it myself. And so if that's how you feel this morning, if you feel downhearted and discouraged like God can never use you to do the work, you have placed yourself squarely where God needs you to be. (laughs) That's right where he wants you. God can use you if that's how you feel. Because God uses worthless 
nobodies. We've got to put that on the sign somewhere. We've got to put that on the front of the church. <laughs> God uses worthless nobodies. God uses people who realize they can never do the work themselves. Because you see, once a person comes to that point, they'll no longer rely upon themselves. They'll rely upon him to do the work through them. Our Lord's choice of apostles this morning, I want you to hear this, please. Our choice of of God's choice of apostles is provided to provide comfort to us. So when somebody says, I'm not qualified to minister, as people have said to me over the time, I can look at the apostles as my response. There is no greater group of nobodies and worthless people than that group of apostles. And hear me, the Bible says they turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Worthless nobodies turn the world upside down. Was it because they had great talent? Was it because they had great position? Was it because of great intellectual ability? They did that because they allowed God to work through them and make it happen. And so I want to say to you this morning, folks, it is not the individual that God chooses that makes the difference. It is the person and the power working through that individual that makes the difference. Great personalities don't get work that work done. I'm a great example of that. A wonderful personality can be an asset. That is not the source of what God uses to accomplish his work. When we look at the apostles, what we realize is it was not it was, it was in spite of them and not because of them that God did his work. And just look at what God did because they were willing to be used. He allowed them to be the first one to proclaim the message of salvation. He allowed them to be the first ones to know the new covenant that God had made with man. He allowed them to be the human foundation upon which God constructed his church. He allowed them to be the first ones to live out the life of Jesus Christ on this earth after Jesus Christ went back to heaven. And so I want to take you back to where we started. Go back again, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go back there one more time. And this time I want you to see verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Now, think of the apostles in mind. Keep the apostles in mind. And by the way, keep yourself in mind as you read verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. (laughs) Are you foolish enough to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Then God can use you. If you'll take that foolishness and get it out there where your world is, God will use you. That's all you need to do. All you need to do. Drop down to verse 26 again, if you would. For ye see, what's the word? Your calling. Not the pastor's calling, not the church staff calling, not somebody else's calling. Paul's talking to you and I. You see your calling, brethren. How that not many wise men after the flesh, praise God, not many mighty, not many noble are called, praise God. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. You're looking at it this morning. To confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. 
You are all through that, folks. That's all about you. It's all about me. You see, those disciples are a clear illustration of the truth. God does not want to use great orators. God does not want to use wise philosophers. God does not want to use outstanding intellects to do his work. Because that would imply that only those types of people can do it. God's work is available to all. God can use anybody to do the work that needs to be done. And God uses the ordinary to show us that all it takes is the ordinary. And God uses the ordinary to keep the focus not on the messenger, but on the message. And that's why so many of these TV preachers bother me. (laughs) Because the focus is all on the messenger. And folks, that's wrong. That's sin. That's sin. The reason I'm doing this series with you this morning, first of all, is because of me. I need it. But also because I want the members and regular attenders of this church to realize God will accomplish his work with ordinary people. And I'm doing this series because I'm hoping there might be somebody in this place who is convinced that God can never use you. You're convinced that God can never, you can never be the presence of Jesus Christ to your world. Folks, listen to me. The only way you'll ever accomplish that work is by doing what the apostles did. They show us not only how the work can be done, they also show us that God does it just through people like you and me. Let me ask you something this morning. Do you see yourself as ordinary? Do you see yourself as basic? Uh, Do you see yourself as nothing special? Praise God. (laughs) Praise God. I hope you do. I do. I hope you do. Uh, You qualify to do God's work if you see yourself that way. God wants to use people just like you to present his son to this world. All you need to do is say, Lord, I'll do it. And he'll take ordinary, basic, run-of-the-mill people like you and I and do a fantastic work through us if you're willing to have it done. Let's pray.